0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good day. Welcome to New Books and History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and honored to have with us Professor Robin Pryor. Professor Pryor is professorial fellow at the University of Adelaide. He is one of the leading historians of the British uh, experience of the two world wars of the 20th century. And today we are discussing his latest book, Conquer We Must A Military History of Britain, 1914 to 1945, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Professor Pryor.
0: Thank you very much, Charles.
1: Professor, what is the thesis of your book?
0: There, there are two theses really in the book. Uh, The first, uh, and this goes to the title, conquer we must, was that once Britain had gone to war, both in 1914 and 1939, on both occasions I must say gone to war rather reluctantly, but once at war, the implacable nature of their resistance. Uh, of their prosecution of the war to uh, the bitter end in both cases struck me uh, as interesting in a liberal state, a liberal democracy. So that's the first thesis. The second thesis is what role did politicians trying to direct this war play in a liberal democracy as against the military? Uh, What were their relations uh, like? Um, How did they manage uh, to do it? What happened uh, in a liberal state where the uh, ultimate arbiters uh, of what happens are the politicians? What happens when they disagreed with the military? And what happened actually when they agreed? So they're the two theses of the book.
1: Would it be correct to say that you still adhere to what one may describe as the neo-Fisherite thesis of German prime responsibility for the outbreak of the Great War?
0: Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I think Fischer got many of the details wrong, uh, given the, the, uh, I, the, the archival work that he, he couldn't possibly do. He got a lot right though, and I think what he got right was the determination of the German uh, state to go to war in 1914, um, really, whatever the circumstances applied. Uh, I mean, the ostensible reason to support Austria, but their first major action, the invasion of Belgium and France, it's hard to get around that.
1: How prepared was the BEF for the war that was fought in 1914
0: to 1918? Uh, look, in some ways, they were. It was a well-trained uh, gr- group, a small uh, army, 140 uh, odd thousand. Um, they were well-trained. Um, they were fully uh, motorised, the only army in 1914 to be so, um, but. The, the, the problem was they were, in a way, well-trained to fight the Boer War, the South African War, the last war that they'd fought in. What they found in 1914, very rapidly, uh, was that this was a different kind of war. This was a war dominated by uh, machines in the form of machine guns and artillery. And that became obvious from the first encounter the BEF had at the Battle of Mons in uh, 1914. And the rest of the war really is a playing out of that theme. Uh, This is a a machine-dominated war, quite different from anything the British had fought up until now.
1: It caught my eye, reading the book, that you don't employ once the expression, the learning curve thesis, is that because you don't adhere to that um, uh, concept as it relates to the British experience of the two world wars?
0: No, I I think it's simplified, as far as matters to the point, frankly, of desperation. Um, Lessons were learnt, uh, apparently. Then they they were apparently forgotten. It's such a jerky process. Uh, for the British. Um, they, they learned, for example, very early in 1914 that cavalry charges uh, against entrenched uh, um, weaponry and, and especially machine guns uh, is, is futile. They learn that, but they keep doing it. Um, they learn that the way to uh, demolish a trench line is to have very careful calculations of the artillery resources that you have, then they forget it. This sort of thing happens right throughout the war until uh, August 1918, when lessons learned uh, at last stick. So I think describing anything as a learning curve does a great deal of disservice to what was a very flawed and jerky process.
1: How would you rate the top British commanders of the BEF in the Great War?
0: Um, it, it's a good question. It's a good question, that. Uh, and it's far too simple, simple to say, uh, to use the lion led by donkeys, uh, which, which, is, which came as a popular usage some years ago. Um, these men were grappling with, um, with, a, with a war They didn't expect a different kind of war. Um, They got a lot of things right. I mean, uh, Sir Douglas Haig, for example, British commander-in-chief from the end of 1915, uh, got the technology in a way he he got it right. He wanted the maximum amount of artillery that he could possibly get. He welcomed new inventions like the tank and brought them into play uh, as soon as he could. Uh, In that sense, uh, he's doing well. The problem for Haig, and for most of them, though, was that they still had a 19th century attitude to the kind of battle you needed to fight. The kind of battle they were fighting was a Napoleonic one, uh, where you broke through the enemy's lines, you rounded up their army, and you, you decisively defeated them in a battle or a campaign. Uh, that kind of thing ceased to be a factor in the First World War, especially on the Western Front, uh, for almost from the moment it started in 1914. Uh, by 1916, the idea of great cavalry sweeps against entrenched machine gunners, barbed wire, uh, artillery and all the paraphernalia of modern war is frankly obsolete. And no one uh, on the British side in in, in a position of high command grasps that fact firmly. General Rawlinson, for example, seems to grasp it in 1915 at the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle. And again, when he's planning the Somme, but his grip on it is not so firm that he isn't able to... uh, instill that sort of tactic uh, with the high command. As far as the high command concerned, Haig, uh, General Horn, um, General Allenby, um, uh, General Plumer, they're, they're all of, of that sort of mindset. They're using 20th century uh, technology, as it were, but in a 19th century framework, uh, a Napoleonic framework, Haig uh, suggests, for example, in October 1916 at the Battle of the Somme, suggests a, uh, an objective 70 miles away. Um, this is quite ridiculous. And it's only in 1918 uh, when the British, frankly, are running out of men that they really turn to the kind of machine war they can fight
1: would it be true to say that the royal navy's performance during the great war was mildly disappointing
0: um it 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 was in a in a way uh, in, in in particular circumstances it was um i mean for example let's 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 take the battle of jutland which is the most important most uh, the largest naval battle fought by the british in the first world war in, in one sense, they win that battle. Um, which navy is sailing uh, around the North Sea the day after the fighting stops? It's not the German high seas fleet. They're in, in port. It's the Royal Navy. So, in a sense, they win it. Uh, there are too many ships. They have too many ships for the Germans, too many dreadnoughts. Uh, what this shows is that the dreadnought building program was brilliant in alienating Britain and absolutely futile in defeating it. Um, along the way, of course, they make a lot of mistakes. Um, uh, uh, the battlecruiser uh, encounters with Beatty getting his signalling wrong, the blowing up of two British uh, battlecruisers early in the battle, followed by another one shortly afterwards. Uh, jellicoe's a failure to detect where the German fleet is towards evening, Uh, lets it sail through the end of the Grand Fleet and get home. Uh, It's not a decisive victory in that sense. And I think naval historians have lamented that fact ever since. It is, however, a decisive victory in its outcome. Uh, As I said, it's, it's the Grand Fleet that's sailing the North Sea in the day after. What Jellicoe did might not have been heroic, but he kept the fleet in being. He kept British naval supremacy in being. Um, the one remark Churchill makes of him in his book *The World Crisis* that he was the only man who could lose the war in an afternoon is absolutely right. And what Jellicoe did was make sure he did not lose the war. Uh, for that, we we have to uh, we have to thank him. Uh, on other aspects of the naval war, though, uh, and this includes Jellicoe. The Admiralty, um, rather than the men at sea, were lamentably poor. They took forever to introduce convoy uh, for merchant ships in in 1917. Though they had convoyed uh, military uh, ships, uh, ships carrying soldiers from the beginning of the war, the Australian contingent uh, for the war, for example, was escorted in convoy by warships, uh, across uh, the Indian Ocean, then into the Mediterranean, then into uh, into France without losing a single person. So the idea that convoy was the way to go had been around for a long time. Uh, it took forever for Jellicoe and the admirals to realise that. The the military, uh, the, the Navy are very slow to adapt to it. They think it's clumsy that it will provide large targets for German submarines when in fact a convoy isn't, as, isn't much more of a target than a single ship uh, on the sea and it's only in desperate circumstances, under pressure from the politicians I might add, Lloyd George in particular, that they adopt convoy and guess what, it works uh, and defeats the submarine campaign so the Navy had a very uneven war uh, while uh, overall uh, their naval supremacy keeps Britain in the war.
1: It's a mixed balance sheet. Why did the debacle that was the Gallipoli campaign occur? It's, it's an
0: interesting one, Gallipoli. Um, what is happening is that the casualties uh, on the Western Front Uh, are much more extensive than uh, the politicians are comfortable with uh, or are willing to live with. What they devise, and this is largely a politician-devised campaign, what they devise uh, against the advice of their naval uh, experts is a second front, if you will, a second front against Turkey. Uh, The idea being, not that you just force the the Dardanelles Straits uh, and maybe knock Turkey out of the war. I mean, Turkey is frankly not much of a a participant anyway. Uh, But that knocking Turkey out of the war gives you access to uh, the Danube Valley and you can attack Germany uh, from the other side, as it were. The fact that there's only one railway up this valley and that you might have to cross the Alps to get to Germany doesn't seem to occur to them. So the idea is uh, war on the cheap, uh, knocking uh, a lesser enemy out of the war, but then grappling with Germany in any way that is not the Western Front, um, attacking Germany from the rear. It's never going to work. There is never going to be enough soldiers even if there were, they couldn't be supplied. The whole idea is cockeyed, and the politicians eventually realise that and realise they have to return to the Western Front.
1: Why did Asquith and the rest of the cabinet allow Sir Douglas Haig to go on with the Battle of the Somme?
0: Yeah, that's a that's that's a very good question. Um, they're very reluctant uh, while Haig is planning the Somme. They're reluctant to give him permission uh, to even start the battle. They seek assurances from the Minister of Munitions, who is Lloyd George, at this point that uh, there are enough guns to break through um, the uh, German front. Uh, Lloyd George, not of course realising how Haig is going to use his guns, um, says yes, the number of guns he has is unprecedented. And that plays some role in uh, allowing the War uh, Council to make the decision to go ahead with a song. When it does go ahead, this is, this is where the puzzle really, really starts. I mean, 60,000 casualties on the first day, 20,000 dead. Uh, would you think be enough to sober any civilian leadership into thinking that this is not a good idea? That's not what happens. There's hardly any discussion in the War Council uh, about the first day of the Somme. And what there is tends to be, well, you can't make omelettes without breaking eggs, that kind of argument. The fact is, though, that the the killing goes on um, and the politicians do nothing. The casualties on the first day of the Somme, we we know well, they're 50% of the troops uh, involved. What is not so well known is that for the rest of the Somme campaign which lasts uh, from July until November the percentage casualties is exactly the same for the whole battle 50%. Um, the, uh, what disguises that is the numbers involved in any particular day are not as big as the first day of the SOM they're smaller but the percentage casualties is the same. day after day after day. In August, Haig asks permission from the War Council, from the politicians, uh, to continue the battle. And they don't even answer him. There is no answer from them at all. And Haig takes this as permission to go on, which which is reasonable enough from his point of view. It's a difficult one, uh, Asquith, in particular, is not familiar with military matters. He's never had much to do with the military in his pre war premiership. Uh, he is reluctant to intervene, in, in particular, uh, on matters of high command. Um, he's done it once. He sacked Sir John French, who's the original leader of the BEF, and put in Sir Douglas Haig. Having put him in, um, it's a brave politician, I think, who would have sacked him six months later. And that plays a role as well. The only person who actually can work out what's going on is Winston Churchill, uh, who realises from leaked War Office sources that the British are suffering many more casualties in the Somme than the Germans. He points this out to the War Council, who are not in the slightest interested. Um, they just allow the battle to continue. It is one of the wonders of the age that uh, the leaders, the liberal leaders in a liberal democracy, allow this kind of slaughter to go on uh, for five months.
1: Would it be true to say that the BEF did not have the same morale problems that the other Great War armies had in 1917, 1918? And if that is the case, why so?
0: Yeah, it's a, again an interesting one. Um, the French uh, uh, indulge in what 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 they call collective indiscipline uh, in 1917, which is a it's sort of conditional mutiny. The French uh, army uh, will fight, uh, but it won't attack. It'll defend, uh, but not conduct offensives. That's that's the conditional mutiny. Uh, the R- Russia we know about uh, utter collapse in 1917. In uh, not, uh, however, uh, with the British. Um, there is uh, there are mutterings in the British Army, picked up by the, the letter censorship during the Battle of uh, Passchendaele in 1917, that the Army is not happy with the way things are going. But it never uh, goes any further than this. Um, the, the best argument I've heard about for this is that the, the British armed forces are positively integrated into, into British society. That is, uh, there is no great split between the military and, and the politicians uh, in an existential sense. That uh, the, however poorly the uh, soldiers perceive the high commanders doing, they don't think of them in any sense as the enemy as they clearly did in Russia and to a limited extent in France. So um, I think it, it, what it shows is that British society is is more solid, more integrated uh, and perhaps this is because it's, it is after all uh, a liberal state where although not all have the vote by any means uh, the, the the feeling is that the, that the leaders are in many ways responsible to the people
1: how would you rate the bef's performance during the ludendorff offences of the spring of 1918
0: yeah this this is uh, this is interesting um Ludendorff, as we all know, makes colossal gains in Western Front terms uh, in his offensives from March uh, through to July 1918. Uh, 50 miles uh, gained. This is cosmic in Western Front terms. Uh, Yet the BEF does not collapse. They conduct a slow and steady uh, retreat there is uh, no collapse, no division of the of the army disintegrates. Um, divisions around them are disintegrating, like the poor uh, two Portuguese uh, divisions that happen to find themselves for reasons i 'm sure they didn't know uh, on the Western front. but the British don't collapse. they retreat, and as they retreat, they are retreating onto their supply bases. They are retreating, uh, in in a sense, back to where their stores of artillery are. And the further back they go, the more solid that artillery support becomes. So there's no reason, in a sense, for them to panic. Um, They are obtaining more firepower in their retreat than the Germans are gaining firepower in their advance. Um, The Germans, in fact, are outrunning their artillery support. Uh, which is the factor that's allowed them to make the breakthrough in the first place. So um, we have an army. Yes, it's in retreat, uh, but there is no need uh, to panic. So the British Army does exceptionally well in the north where they're close to the channel ports and they need to keep the Germans away from those ports. Uh, They are solid. There's hardly a, a, a mile of retreat. Up there, further south, where they're pushed back 50 miles, it doesn't particularly matter that they lose that territory. It's not vital. In fact, a lot of it is the old battleground of the Somme. And the Germans. what the Germans are doing in advancing there is inheriting a wasteland, which makes the supply of their own armies even more difficult. So the British do well in the Ludendorff offensives even though they're pushed back.
1: What explains the successes of the Hundred Days Campaign at the end of the Great War? By the BEF, that is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, the BEF, and look, other armies as well, uh, the French, uh, and I might say the Americans who fight uh, with the British uh, in several crucial battles in this period. Uh, have finally learnt some lessons. There is a very chilling line from Rawlinson, the commander of the 4th Army, uh, along the lines of, now we are running out of men, we must turn to machines. And this is what the British do. They're, they're sort of forced to do it by uh, Lord George, by the civilian government, who is withholding um, uh, potential troops from them. Uh, and keeping them in civilian employ. They, they're doing that for two reasons. One is uh, that uh, these people are needed on the home front to make tanks, machines, machine guns, uh, artillery pieces and ships in increasing numbers, and sending them into the army would have, in fact, de-industrialized the army. And the other thing is they're keeping them out of the hands of Haig. He can't indulge in any of the huge offensives like the Somme. Uh, and Passchendaele, as he did in 1916 and 17 he's got to smart to fight smarter now and that's exactly what he does um, and for this he deserves some credit uh, the plans are devised by people below hague but he is quite prepared to see them carried out so from august 1918 uh, we don't get any grandiose offensives we don't get any 70-mile objectives. We get objectives within the range of the artillery to support the troops. So at the Battle of Amiens, which starts on the 8th of uh, August, 1918, um, the initial advance of 9 or 10 miles is, is modest, even in terms uh, that Ludendorff uh, has said earlier in the year. But it's sustainable. That's the point. Um, The tanks, uh, the artillery uh, can sustain the offensives because they can keep uh, those gains in solid hands. Um, They can put up walls of shells that the Germans cannot uh, get through. Then, uh, after some reorganisation, you can make uh, other uh, advances. And what this is, is the first sort of modern weapons system in evolution You've got uh, tanks, you've got artillery, you have uh, riflemen uh, equipped with rifle grenades, uh, light machine guns, Lewis guns, uh, heavy machine guns in greater numbers than you've ever had before. And you are now using them in combination uh, with each other. So it is now a weapons system. The Germans never develop anything like this on on their side uh, of the front. So these gains, small gains, uh, each one of them, uh, August, September, they're not huge. But when they get to uh, the German defensive lines, they use the weight of weaponry, the weight of artillery, a million shells in 24 hours, to break down those uh, defensive lines. So it's also a matter of supply. Uh, And This is where uh, the Americans uh, come into the picture, Uh, not so much uh, as fighters although uh, they are important in helping to break the Hindenburg Line in September uh, 1918. There are two American divisions there. Where the Americans are important is supplying the British with money uh, in uh, ever increasing amounts so that the Ministry of Munitions in Britain is the largest munitions works in the world and the most efficient. And that's, that's some story, because in 1914, the British Army had virtually no munitions works at all. They had a couple of firms, Vickers Armstrong and the like, working for them, but no uh, industry. Now they have millions in the munitions industry supplying them with these shells Uh, tanks and guns that enables them to break the deadlock finally on the
1: Western Front. Why did British foreign policy in the interwar period eventually devolve into the policy of appeasement?
0: There was a a great feeling, uh, especially from the late 20s uh, in the early 30s of never again never the Western Front again, never the Killing Fields in France and Flanders again. This has given a great boost as people's memoirs from the First World War start to come uh, into into prominence. I'm thinking here of uh, books by Robert Graves, Goodbye to All That, um, Siegfried Sassoon, um, memoirs of an infantry officer and many others, uh, Richard Aldington, Death of a Hero, uh, and so on. Um, there is a gre- gradual revulsion uh, about what happened in 1918 uh, and a gradual forgetting of why the war was fought in the first place to prevent uh, German e- expansion. This feeling of never again uh, takes over from the, in the early 30s in, in Britain. And it is intensified by the prospect of uh, a new war with new weaponry. Um, one of the key speeches of the 1930s is made by Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister, who says, whatever we do, uh, whatever we devise, the bomber will always get through. And you get uh, uh, stories and films by H.G. Wells, um, Showing cities absolutely uh, flattened uh, by bombing, and uh, in particular, uh, it's no secret that most of these cities are, in fact, London, um, and uh, a, 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 a fat tethered cow uh, in Churchill's phrase and uh, this so this increases the, the revulsion. A war fought now with modern weaponry, and particularly modern bombers, is going to be much more horrific, uh, people think, even than the First World War. So we must move to stop it. How can we do that? Uh, well, we must strike a deal with Germany. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, except the guy you're trying to strike a deal with is Adolf Hitler. Um, uh, between whom deals cannot be struck, uh, you you might come to an arrangement with Hitler, but when it suits him, he will break it. And this is the story, the sad story of appeasement from about 1935.
1: Uh, why do you mostly absolve Churchill of blame for the debacle, or the fiasco, I should say, of the Norway campaign of 1940?
0: Yeah, uh, Churchill is in a difficult position here. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't do well. Um, the, the, the landings uh, in Norway are, in some ways, reminiscent of the Dardanelles. They're, they're poorly thought out. They're poorly organised. Uh, nobody knows where the suppliers are going. Uh, often the supplies go to elsewhere uh, than where the troops are. It's a a difficult position. But Churchill is not prime minister. He's first lord of the Admiralty. There's a a huge difference of trying to run the war, which frankly Churchill is trying to do, from a subordinate position than one uh, running it as prime minister. Um, He can't do everything that he'd like to do. Uh, He has to get Chamberlain's approval uh, for that, Uh, They form a couple of other extraneous bodies, uh, which Churchill chairs, but he can't get decisions. Uh, He has to invite Chamberlain to those meetings. Uh, The meetings dissolve into absolute indecision uh, as Chamberlain basically can't decide whether he wants to fight this war to the the knife or not. Um, So Churchill is responsible for a few things that go wrong, in Norway, but he's not ultimately responsible because he's not ultimately in charge.
1: Why do the RFA win and the Luftwaffe lose the Battle of Britain?
0: Yeah, uh, this goes back to uh, the mid-30s and uh, the invention of radar um, The radar chain around Britain is absolutely crucial in the the decision for the Battle of Britain. Uh, It enables Britain to have an early warning, not much of a one, because the Luftwaffe are just across the Straits of Dover. Um, Not much of a warning, but enough to get planes into the sky in time to, to meet them. Now, the planes that do get into the sky uh, are are good. Um, They're excellent planes, again, designed in the uh, mid-30s, the Hurricane, which is the main plane in the Battle of Britain, and, of course, uh, the better-known Spitfire. Uh, These are the equal of anything the Germans have got, the Schmidt 109. Um, These planes are the equal of them, and they're more than the equal, of course, of the uh, slower... Uh, and fairly lightly armed German uh, bombers. Now, what you need uh, for this system to work are commanders that know what they're doing. And luckily for Britain in 1940, they have such commanders. They have Hugh Dowding, uh, head of fighter command, and they have Sir Keith Park, who was actually born in New Zealand, but is in charge of 11 group uh, that is the one uh, based at Uxbridge that is defending uh, London and the airports uh, to, to its south. And the tactics these people devise is to send up uh, not everything they've got uh, to meet the Luftwaffe, but enough to break up the German bomber stream. So that what they're doing is committing just a small fraction of fighter Command which only has, at this point, about 750 uh, single-engine fighters. Not a lot. Uh, But Park and Dowding devise these tactics, uh, miserly tactics, of sending 20, 30, 50 planes against uh, many more that the Luftwaffe send over and find that they can break up the bomber stream, which induces inaccurate bombing from uh, pretty light bomb loads, it has to be said, Three or 4,000 pounds is what these uh, German two-engine planes can carry. Uh, they are, in a sense, not strategic bombers trying to carry out a strategic offensive. Yes, they can damage airfields, uh, but when they start dropping their bombs on London, uh, it's too big a target for the kind of bomb loads that they have. So it's Park, Sir Keith Park, and Hugh Dowding, Uh, that devise the strategy and they stick to it right through the battle. Uh, Always in the battle, the British have a reserve of planes and they have them uh, in the north of England and Scotland. Uh, They can be called upon at any time, but they're they're not called on very often. Um, They're the reserve if things start to go belly up further south and uh, they're kept out of the day-to-day fighting while 11 group under Park does most of the work. Uh, so at the end of the battle, the British have more uh, single-engine planes than they began with. They have over 1,000.
1: In the context of the North African campaign, why were Wavell and Orkinlec failures as commanders and Montgomery a success?
0: Yeah, I mean, Wavell uh, starts off doing particularly well. Um, he, uh, he routs the uh, uh, Italian uh, 10th Army in 1940 and 41, virtually destroys it. Um, he's using tactics that are not unfamiliar uh, to those who study the battles of 1918. Tobruk, to for example, which he captures from the Italians, is the result of a mass artillery bombardment with troops following a creeping barrage behind close behind it, who, who overwhelm the Italian uh, defences. The difficulty comes when you get a, a, an opponent with better weaponry uh, and uh, a more savvy way of fighting the war, which, of course, you do uh, when Rommel and the Africa Corps arrive in uh, North Africa. Um, Rommel ha- has this reputation for dashing about the desert in tanks, he actually doesn't. What he does is lure the British onto his tanks, often dug in uh, in the sand and often accompanied by anti-tank guns, including the devastating 88 millimeter gun. Um, the British tanks can't survive uh, this sort of thing. And it's rather the British who go dashing about the desert in tanks. Maybe this comes from the fact that when Britain... Um, created its tank force. It did it by mechanising the cavalry that is most of the commanders in the desert during this period uh, were cavalry officers in their early days and they're behaving in their groups of tanks as though they're in uh, a cavalry charge. The problem here is they're charging anti-tank guns and dug in tanks and usually disastrously The British response to these early reverses from Rommel is to uh, decentralise their um, fighting force even further. They develop armoured columns, uh, small groups of tanks, artillery and infantry that try and outflank uh, Rommel at various points. The problem is these columns are not strong enough actually uh, to... uh, be successful anywhere what's happening is that Rommel is enabled by keeping his tanks and guns together, he's able to pick these uh, columns off one at a time <coughs> this happens under Wavell and it's intensified under General Auchinleck. now Auchinleck is a, is a clever uh, commander but he's gone down the wrong path In in all this, he's a weight of material and sometimes enables him to succeed. Operation Crusader is a a sort of British success. uh, But the British uh, lose so much stuff in fighting that battle in 1942 that Rommel is able to counterattack quite quickly and gain back all the territory he's lost. Uh, From then on, the British uh, decentralization gets worse and worse and worse. They have what's called brigade boxes uh, all scattered all over the desert. They're not mutually supporting. So again, Rommel can pick them off one after the other. In the end, uh, Churchill and Allenbrook back in London, uh, Chiefs of General Staff, uh, uh, have had enough of this. They go out to the desert. and, And there's a certain amount of irony here because the person Churchill wants to appoint General Gott is one of those who've decentralized the uh, uh, the Eighth Army uh, he's responsible for these uh, brigade boxes uh, which Rommel can deal with quite well but What happens though is Gott uh, on his way to take up his uh, his post as commander of the Eighth Army is killed in an air crash, and uh, Montgomery uh, is flown out from. Uh, Uh, England to do the job now what the difference between Montgomery and the uh, earlier desert commanders is that Montgomery is a centraliser rather than dispersing his firepower he unites it the artillery will now act as one um, 600 or so guns Um, the tanks will not go dashing about all over the desert Uh, they will be very cautious in their approach. Uh, In fact, at Montgomery's uh, signature battle at Alamein, the infantry uh, picked their way through the minefields to clear a way for the armour, not the other way round. And, of course, uh, the British have better armour now. Um, Churchill is actually in Washington Uh, when one of the disasters of Orkin has presided over comes through. They've lost a huge amount of tanks. And President Roosevelt and uh, uh, General Marshall immediately offer the British 300 of their newest tanks, the Sherman tank, which is a better tank than the British have ever had in the desert before, and they're used at uh, Alamein a good example of inter-allied cooperation there because these tanks were designed to go to uh, U.S. units which were waiting for them. Instead, they go to the British, they go to the Western Desert and they help uh, win the Battle of Alamein. But the main reason Alamein is won, is that Montgomery uh, centralises everything on himself and his staff uh, who are super... Super confident and super efficient. Alamein opens with the largest artillery bombardment seen uh, I suspect since 1918. Uh, It blasts away at the Germans and Montgomery keeps at it. Um, There will be no decentralisation, no columns dashing about under him. It will be centralised in his headquarters. That eventually uh, well, I mean, what Montgomery's doing actually is fighting a battle of attrition at Alamein. Though he dare not use that word after the First World War, attrition is 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 not to be not to be used. Uh, but that's what he's doing, and gradually he crumbles away uh, the uh, Africa Corps defences and forces Rommel into a retreat, which Montgomery cautiously follows up not wanting to this back and forth across the desert uh, that you've had for the last uh, two years. This time when Rommel retreats, it's permanent.
1: Would it be true to say that you did not quite agree with Jonathan Fennell's highlighting the importance of morale to the African campaign in particular and the British experience of the Second World War in general? Uh, look, I, I, that's, that's a,
0: an amazingly important book. Uh, by Jonathan for now, um, and he highlights the fluctuations in in British morale, which certainly go up and down. I think my point is, despite these fluctuations in morale, uh, the British keep fighting. I think Jonathan has got it absolutely right. In, in Singapore, uh, morale falls to such an extent there that the army. Uh, basically disintegrates, uh, though there are plenty of military reasons why that's that's the case. In North Africa, uh, I'm sure he's right in all this. I'm sure uh, British morale before Alamein was pretty low. Uh, the fact is, though, they kept on fighting. Um, and what that shows is that you can fight with low morale sometimes as well as you can uh, with high morale. Um, Same applies to the Blitz in some ways People keep talking about how British morale dropped during the Blitz Uh, The fact is it would be surprising if it didn't If you're being bombed every night from the sky Why wouldn't your morale drop? Uh, On the other hand, if you're prepared to get up in the morning and go to work Then uh, to what extent is morale a key factor And to what extent is tenacity a factor Um, that's, I think, uh, the only area where I I disagree with that book, which I admire pretty much.
1: Do you agree with Fennell that, uh, in the same book, that due to various deficiencies, the British army, for the most of the war, was incapable of complex tactics and manoeuvres, as, say, the Germans were? Yeah.
0: I I, I, I suppose I differ a little. in I don't think the British... Uh, That's the way the British fight best. I think Montgomery discovered the way they fight best, and that is uh, with non-spectacular actions. Uh, We've talked of Alamein, but uh, we can also talk about uh, Normandy in in this context. None of the British battles fought in Normandy are spectacularly successful. Uh, We have... uh, we have Epsom, we have Charnwood, we have uh, Goodwood, Bluecoat, and all the rest of them. None of them get very far, but they are doing the job that Montgomery wants done, uh, and that is wearing down the Germans, pinning them to the British flank uh, while the Americans uh, uh, can do uh, much greater manoeuvres uh, on, on the right. On the right. Um, it's I think the way the British... Fight their wars uh, best. I mean, what this reminds me of, uh, especially Normandy, is Grant's campaign in 1864 um, 5, Petersburg, uh, Wilderness, Spotsylvania, and the like. Every time Grant sort of loses, he advances. Uh, every time Montgomery doesn't get anywhere, he wears the Germans down just that little bit more. Uh, eventually, he's worn them down to the extent that they collapse. Uh, German casualties in the Normandy campaign are just about half a million. The army is disintegrated by the end of that campaign. And that campaign, I might add, it lasted just 11 weeks from um, June the 6th until uh, August the 20th or 22nd. Uh, The German army is finished off in in the West and the British have played a considerable role in that, as, as of course have the Americans. Um, in bringing that about by, until the end, pretty unspectacular uh, campaigns. The only spectacular campaign in the whole norm of the operation is really COBRA uh, and uh, uh, Patton's uh, exploitation of COBRA. But the wearing down has been done by Montgomery and Bradley in in fairly uh, ordinary, unflashy, unmaneuverable circumstances but they've done the job nonetheless
1: in Lord Moran's diaries there are various comments by people like Field Marshal Alexander as well as Churchill to the effect that the average British soldier of the Second World War was not quite up to the level of the Great War vintage British soldier do you agree
0: Um, I I think they're different specimens Um, uh, altogether, the, uh, the deference that allowed battles like the Somme uh, to take place, the uh, un- unthinking uh, obedience to instruction that that needed, a campaign like that needed, had gone uh, by the time of the Second World War. Um, partly it had gone because of a change of attitude from the local, uh, from the population. Partly it had gone because the British leadership in the Second World War realised that you could not fight First World War battles uh, in, during the Second World War. Once uh, was enough, or indeed too much, twice was, was unthinkable. So the battles had to be fought in, in different ways in the, in the Second World War, and they had to be fought, especially if you're British. Uh, with a casualty uh, list always in mind. The British Army is running out of men actually before the Normandy uh, invasion in 1944. You can't fight a battle um, like the Somme in those sort of conditions. Uh, Britain is wishing to preserve its army to the extent it can, uh, to cut some uh, form of... to cut some figure at, at at a peace conference, which everybody thought would happen in 1945. Uh, so, comparing the soldiers is very difficult. Um, there are technological explanations, military explanations for why uh, the British fail in 1941 and 42 uh, to win uh, many of their battles, uh, rather than looking at the men and saying they're deficient. Though, you're quite right, uh, Moran, Alexander, Brooke, even, and, and Churchill at times, thinks that they're not up to the same kind of battle. But the fact is the same kind of battle isn't being fought. It's being fought much more uh, with machines. The key arm in the British Army is that key arm that won them those victories in 1918. It's the artillery. Uh, It is the most superior of the British arms uh, in the army and and possibly in the American army as well, actually. Uh, But um, the British are able to use their artillery much more flexibly than the Germans. They are uh, able to bring firepower down of an enormous kind, sometimes an entire army, on a single target. The Germans never developed that sort of thing. And uh, the British have learnt, in that extent, the lessons of 1918 and and those victorious battles from Amiens on. So I, I don't think it's all that helpful comparing the soldiers of one war with those of another when they are, in fact, in the West, fighting a different kind of war.
1: Do you agree with those such as Sir Max Hastings who posit that the average British and indeed American soldier of the Second World War was not as good as his German opposite number?
0: Yeah, no, I agree with Max Hastings on a lot of things, but not that. Um, I'm looking uh, in my latest work, I'm looking at the Normandy campaign and I'm not finding any evidence to, uh, to support that. Uh, I know people have said the Germans have the best tanks, best machine guns, and so on uh, in in that campaign, better than the Americans, better than the British. But uh, to me, uh, the British uh, and the Americans are able to outmaneuver the Germans time after time. I mean, we've got to keep this in mind. Keep that 11-week period in mind. It takes just 11 weeks from June the 6th for the Allied armies in Normandy to smash the German opponents. That's not bad going. Um, 77 days and you've destroyed the German army in in the West. You must be doing something right uh, to be able to do that, to say the least. Uh, and what I intend to do in this further work is to investigate that issue that you raise, which is... Uh, pervasive throughout the literature and uh, come to some more definite conclusions. But my interim conclusions are that I I would disagree with Max Hastings on that point.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor, what would it be?
0: It would be, uh, I think, the primacy... uh, In in liberal states, in democratic states, the primacy of the the politicians, they are the ones ultimately responsible uh, to the people for how the war is conducted. And if that means they have to keep sacking generals until they find ones uh, that can win them the war, then that's what it means. Uh, Churchill is often criticised. Sacking too many generals uh, in the first world in the Second World War, you could argue though that the political leadership in Britain in the First World War didn't sack enough. Um, I mean, a great sacker of generals, Abraham Lincoln, uh, knew what he was doing. In that sense, he kept sacking them until he fi- found one, um, Ulysses Grant. Uh, so my the big takeaway to me is that the policy politicians must. Be prime in any war conducted by a democratic state. And in Britain, uh, that was the case in both wars.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Pryor, for being so kind to speak with us today. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you very much, Professor Pryor.
0: Well, thank you for having me. Thank you.